You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Chris Claremont, recommending that you take a listen to Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. In this episode, we have an interview with Chris Claremont, who's been on the show a few times already. This time, we will be talking exclusively about Miss Marvel. And of course, Chris wrote the Miss Marvel series, the very first Miss Marvel series in the 70s, and really defined a lot of her character and who she is. And we'll talk about all of that kind of stuff, what it was like to write in that era, uh, what it was like to develop this character, uh, the changes that he made to kind of make her a little bit long lasting. And we'll even touch on a little bit of the controversy surrounding Avengers 200 and and uh, when he when Rogue took all of her powers and all that kind of stuff too. So hang on for this this ride. It's great. And just before we move on to the interview, I just want to do a quick plug for Patreon. If any of you out there want to support the podcast, you can throw a couple of bucks our way. Uh, it'll help us, you know, offset some of the costs of keeping this show going. And uh, you can you can view it at Patreon.com/thunderquack. So check that out. Uh, help out the Thunderquack Podcast Network, and you'll get uh, some access to some cool, exclusive content as well. So I think that's it from me. Now here, let's turn it over to this interview with the great Chris Claremont. Well, I wanted to talk to you today about Miss Marvel kind of the origins of this character and and your stamp Mm -hmm. on it that you put in these early days. Can you tell me a little bit about where... I know that you didn't create the concept of Miss Marvel, but you were around when it was created. Can you tell me about the how the idea came about? I would I would actually assume it was uh, discussions between uh, Jerry Conway and uh, the editor-in-chief, who I think was Archie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a long time ago. I'd have to actually <laughs> dig up the books and look. Yeah. Um, being around doesn't... I really wasn't involved in the conceptual processes with the character that that's actually you'd be better served by talking to Jerry. Mm-hmm. I mean, I came in with a second issue when Jerry gave up the book. So I basically was picking up a finished concept mm-hmm. at that point. I think if it had been, if I'd been involved from the start, I, I certainly would have had a, or tried to have a different approach to her as not so much as a character, but as a visual what were the things that you did like about the character, the concept? I thought she was a, oh, as a concept, it was a lot of fun, I think. She she was a dynamic female lead, which I'm always attracted to. Mm-hmm. And she was mainstream, which was another attraction because I didn't want to get pigeonholed in, into the mutant universe. <laughs> right. And it looked like it would, it, you know, that was basically the core foundations i guess and what were the things that you would that you thought that you would like to change about this character 
For me, as a conceptualist, if that word is even real as opposed to valid, if you look at Jim Starlin's design for Captain Marvel, the the core design of that costume, Mm -hmm. it is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I mean, you look at the, and you've got the, the blue shoulder, the, the top of the, of, I guess, the leotard, for what it's worth. Right, yeah. You've got a broad shoulder, you accent the broad shoulder, and then you have this perfect triangle diving straight down to the hips. And it's accented by the uh, V-shape of the trunks. Okay. So you look at it, and it's like, whoa, yeah. this guy is cool. <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way when you put it on a female physique because, okay, you've got the broad shoulders. Well, they're not quite that broad. And, oh, yes, look what it immediately nails you with right off the bat. You're looking at her chest. Yeah. And yeah. then you dive down in that triangle, except halfway down, two-thirds of the way down, you suddenly do a U-turn and go the other direction because of uh, female physiognomy, wide hips. Right. And then when you accent it by putting the the uh, trunks on it what you've got is broad shoulders broad hips and it, to my eye anyway it wasn't dynamic mm-hmm. it it ended up accentuating all the the elements of that gender that it's also it's kind of sort of cool but it's at least to my eye it kind of sort of wasn't cool because it just made her more of a sex object than a, than a hero and i thought that wasn't fair right yeah and then from a practical standpoint, the giant windows over over her mid-torso, front and back. So you're kind of looking at a bikini with, I don't know, uh, the equivalent of... Like suspenders or something. <laughs> yeah, sus- thank you. Yeah. Suspenders. And it just, again, when John Buscema draws it, who cares? Right. Because his way of handling the human figure was, was both attractive and totally cool. Mm-hmm. The problem is we only had John for the first three issues. Right. You know, Jerry's two and my first. And after that, the, the ability to present it got very, uh, I guess you could say, fluid. Okay. And the real problem was, for, we were dealing with artists who, we kept saying, we need her to look sexy because that, we were co- being a commercial enterprise. We wanted, if we're going to have a woman character, we wanted her to look cool. The problem is, I can tell... John Byrne or Dave Cockrum or Bill Sienkiewicz, I need the character to look cool and sexy. And we'd be on the same wavelength. But working with artists who came out, came into comics in the 50s and from a commercial art uh, experience, it ended up, we ended up embarrassingly with a, a lot of shots, which were just her flying through the air with splayed legs. And it was like, <laughs> ew. I mean, it, it was attractive, but only to a point. And it's the kind of shot you wouldn't dare do with, with Iron Man or Cap right. or um, Thor or Superman or Batman, for that matter. But with her, it, it just, and it just, it, we could never find the right rhythm in those early issues. I mean, we had all the elements of, of a modern, successful urban figure, editor of, of uh, Jonas's magazine, I keep trying to remember the name, and I keep coming up with Ms., and that's it's so a, totally wrong. It's Woman Magazine. Woman Magazine, of course. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> but again, the flip side is she was supposed to be a hip, trend-setting, utterly 70s gal. Right. But when you're dealing with artists who, whose formative experience is the 50s, early 60s, 
it's a totally different design hmm. conceptual conception. Right, right. So I, what I would end up doing is literally pulling photographs out of the Times when they were, the New York Times when they would run fashion fashion magazines or, or going and getting copies of Vogue and just clip out goods, what I thought was cool stuff and sending it and saying, look, this is what we wanted to look like. So finally, as we got into the, into the run, she began to look a little more contemporary as Carol. Right. And then, you know, so we began building our, our sense of her. And I think as, and then I did what I had wanted to do from the start, which is turn the, the leotard into a full leotard. I took out, you know, taking out the um, those windows, the bare skin, because it yeah. just it looks sort of dumb going into a fight. Even <laughs> if she was invulnerable, it looked kind of silly. Yeah, very you know, true. Me just being, you know, pompous and arrogant as only a twenty-eight-year-old can be. Uh, I wanted it to look perfect, and of course, from the twenty-first century point of view, perspective, looking at her hairstyle, then it was like, <laughs> so totally not what we wanted. On the other hand, you look at how girl, how women, young women and girls looked, it was right on, it was totally in vogue. Right. But then the other aspect of this was I was also trying to f- fit in my perception of the reality of who she actually was. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, here's Carol Danvers. She's chief of security at the Kennedy Space Center where she, where she meets Captain Marvel. So I had to figure she was at least a major in the Air Force. Right. She got in as, a, as an enlisted person, became a Mustang, got herself promoted to being an officer, worked her way up, up the ranks. But to me, if you're, gonna be, if you're at that rank level, I guess you could call, mm-hmm. that meant, okay, we're looking at a woman in her 30s, not a kid. Right. She's a grown-up. Because it takes time to get to that level. Well, a level of physical and emotional and career maturity. Yeah. Um, but see, the thing everyone has to remember, especially the creative staff, is when you're looking at comics, time is totally fluid in that while the readers can look at the issues and think, ah, 20 years has passed, what the publisher and the, and the writers, especially and the artists, have to realize is that officially the Marvel Universe is still technically 11 or 12 years old from the moment Reed, Ben, Sue, and Johnny went up in their rocket. Hmm. Which means at this perspective, from our present perspective, the Marvel Universe started somewhere in the mid-aughts. Right, yeah. Which which makes Magneto increasingly unique (laughs) because he's one of three characters, the other two being Cap and Bucky, who are totally locked into a specific point in time. Right. But that makes things really creepy because the, the social and political and historical world encompassed in the, the, 16, the 12 years, say, of the Marvel Universe. But what, well, the, the 60 years of the contemporary Marvel Comics Universe compressed into those 11 or 12 years is way weird. <laughs> yes, Especially uh, since everything has to be, it seems it has to be rebooted, rebooted every three months. But that's a whole other discussion. Right. We finally got to the point where we had a fairly cool presentation of her. Mm-hmm. And I, did, I got a couple of issues done by Carmine Infantino, which were just kick-ass. And that's where I, I established her history and her family. But even that looks weird because the whole point of her family history was they only had enough money to send one kid to college. And that was going to be her younger brother, because as her father put it, you're a girl. Right. You're going to go to college and you're going to get married and have babies. And that degree is going to be wasted. 
our son will will forge a career and then of course tragically he went off and died in vietnam mm-hmm. so it was it was a lose lose both ways around but carol made her life in the air force so the 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 pièce de résistance was my managing to attract dave cockrum and get him in for issue 20 yes and with that issue i finally got the chance to totally reboot her because the one thing i felt was a, a fundamental mistake with carol was that she was visually and conceptually totally derivative from Captain Marvel. And from my perspective, I hate that. It's like having, you have Iron Man, and then you have Ms. Iron Man, and then you have Kid Iron Man. Right. And then you have Black Iron Man, or Green Iron Man, or, you know, it's like, to me, it tends to make the character less individual, less dynamic. It it devalues the individuality of the person and the brand. You know, there's no kid Captain America. There should be no, for you know, it's doing Superboy. I understand the the commercial purposes, but eh, because can't you have just Clark by himself? Right. So it was always like as a, as a copy, as a girl copy of, of Captain Marvel or echo of Captain Marvel. She was never, on her own and i wanted to find a way to make her on her own unique unto her unto herself yes her powers may have derived from the the issue of captain marvel where she, the two of them were were caught in some sort of cree who's he what's it and they exchanged genes or something but i wanted her to stand out on her own as a cool dynamic attractive character regardless right. of gender yeah so Dave came up with the the his Ms. Marvel costume, which was, to my eye, absolutely brilliant. Oh yes. And we we hit the road. Unfortunately, we ran into the the most uh, basic of of problems. We got canceled. <laughs> yeah. If we I feel if we'd started with issue twenty, if that had been the first issue. I, I like to think we'd have we'd have made a heck of a run of it. Yeah. But as it was, uh, by that time it was just commercially too late. So she went off into limbo, and uh, joined the Avengers and had fun with there. And um, that's a whole different chapter of the story. Yeah. Um, let's back up a little bit here and talk. I'd like to hear. Uh, now you've already mentioned working a little bit with Jim Mooney, um, mm-hmm. and can you tell me a little bit about what he's like? Because I just don't know him at all because he's passed. He's long passed away. What was working with Jim like? No, well, he was very nice. He did. He did everything we asked of him. The problem is, as I was saying, he was looking at it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So when I when we would say we needed to look cool and sexy, he drew what was to him cool and sexy. Yeah, it wasn't that it was bad. It was just it you know it, it was the perspective of a different, more mature in terms of age generation. Right. The same thing kind of happened a couple of years later with with issue one. Sorry, issue twenty is that we have a scene where Carol goes down to the Southwest because an army unit has disappeared and one of the people in the unit was a friend of hers. And she and, oh, New Mexico state policeman or Texas Texas Ranger, I'm not sure which, I can't remember which, but it was Dave's visual compliment to uh, the old science fiction movie Them. Okay. uh, Because he basically drew the same character, which we thought was cool. Right. But they're driving through the desert and Dave put Carol in... Uh, jeans and, you know, respectable, I guess, camping shirt. And Stan looked at it and said, she doesn't look sexy. Can't you put her in, like, short shorts? <laughs> and we said, uh, 
but she's a, mag- a respectable magazine editor. You can't put a respect, you know, you can't put a, you know, how many 30 plus year old magazine editors do you know who run around in short shorts? Right. <laughs> you know, um, the devil wears Prada, but the devil doesn't wear short shorts. <laughs> so we compromised and she basically, Dave had her tie, you know, we, the picture w- was her with her shirt tied uh, up under under her chest. Okay. But that was that's that was the continuous challenge. We had to find a way to make her attractive, or as Stan said, sexy, without diminishing her as as the character that she was and the role that she was. Right. Uh, which is the eternal challenge in comics. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the advantage, I guess, of with the New Mutants and the X Men because most of them are teenagers. Teenagers, you can get away with anything. <laughs> right. Grown ups. Slightly different story. Grown-ups with a real-world job where they have to look like grown-ups, totally different head. You know, you're not going to see Susan Richards running around in hot pants. <laughs> well, I think there was a period of time where she did uh, in the 90s. Well, then your memory is way better than mine. <laughs> now, if, if this series were to have continued... What were your plans? Do you remember what you like the grand picture of what you wanted to do? Uh, basically, ha- have her kick ass all over the place and be the hero. I wanted her deep down inside to eclipse Jim Starlin's work on Captain Marvel, hmm. except he cheated and killed him off. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean that. That was. I mean that was. I guess the ultimate goal would be to have her as Ms. Marvel turn into the kind of character that that Dave and I tried to turn her into when we when we manifested binary. Right. Because at least at that point, we considered Binary one of the most powerful celestial characters in the X canon. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, it was the first time in her comic book lifetime that Carol was assuming an identity that was unique and individual and solely and completely her. Right, yeah. It wasn't derivative from, from Captain Marvel. Wow, and I think that because to me that would have been the ideal, I guess, the ideal uh, destiny. Is that why you had Rogue take away her powers? Is it like kind of the first step to becoming binary? Actually, no. At that point, I was just that was me. I had such a negative reaction to Avengers two hundred, right? That I just had to do something about it, and I just I wrote that story and pitched it, and Jim bought it, but it just exploded out of me because I found the initial story so. Yeah, it's just distasteful. The tactful word is unfair. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I couldn't conceive of that happening with any of the real people I knew, and especially any of the real women that I knew, and them letting it slip by like that. I mean, it 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 was just wrong on every imaginable level. It the fact that it happened, the fact that the Avengers let it happen, mm-hmm. the fact that nobody asked a question anywhere, the fact that nobody helped her afterwards. Try well that that they took that they took her decision to go away with uh, what's-his-face at, uh, you know, oh, good for you, it's a happy ending, hmm. live happily ever after, bye-bye. Yeah. That, it, it's just, ugh. And so, I, I mean, that, the amusing, not amusing, but Shooter's, Jim is quite right. The actual story of the Avengers annual doesn't begin until page 32 when the Quinjet lands at the at Xavier's mansion. Right. The first 30 pages are all backstory and setup. And no, I wanted to put Carol in a point, you know, there's a price that has to be paid. There's a consequence, sorry, not a price, a consequence to events. And I didn't want 
to do a story where after all of that, Carol just reverted to, to basically normal and went back to the Avengers and everything went on as if nothing had happened. Mm-hmm, right. There are consequences that, that, you know, and sometimes as Wanda says, I think, to, to the vision at the end is they didn't see it coming. And it didn't, the fact that, I mean, as Carol says to them, you let me go and never once said, what the hell is happening here? And that's, you know, if you're heroes, you've got to take responsibility. You've got to, you've got to take that extra moment to look at the uh, what is happening and ask, is this right? Yeah. And if it if it is right, let's prove it. If it isn't right, we've got to do something about it. And I also didn't want uh, what's his face. I, I I happily killed him off with permission, but I didn't want him popping up anytime in the future. And and <laughs> I'm sure if some other writer wanted to bring him back, they could. But I just I. You could argue that it, what I did was in, inappropriate, and in that you, you shouldn't have one writer writing and doing an editorial commentary on another writer. But I was young and pissed, and I was really pissed <laughs> off. Yeah, but Jim gave you like he was okay with this issue. Well, I, he approved it. Yeah, I mean, I it wasn't like I just did it out of nowhere. I I, I pitched it to him. Yeah, I you know he read he read the you know he read the pitch. He read the the plot. He read the script. Mm-hmm. I mean. The, the whole point of having an editorial structure is that you don't you don't blindside people. Right. You can't blindside people. Yeah, I, I think it's great that you went back and you know did justice to well, the no, character. And apparently, even David said that there were there were a whole bunch of problems with getting that issue out, just in terms of, of you know he wasn't he wasn't comfortable with it either. Okay. But that's you know that's a discussion to have with him, not with me. Yeah, yeah. And I'm you know it was. It had nothing to do with the, with the people who actually did the story. I, I, I just wanted her redeemed, yep. restored, sure. dealt with respect. For sure. And, and then once yeah. I had her back, I wanted to put her in a, you know, spend an appropriate amount of time dealing with how do you deal with life when you, when you lose your superpowers and what happens next. And that was, again, that was the journey we went on mm-hmm. until Dave and I cr- turned her into binary. And we thought that was a happy ending, but little did we know. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, and that's the, that's the issue with all of these serialized characters that you hand it off to somebody else and you never know what's going to happen next, right? Well, I think the, the fantasy is will always, well, at least in my case, was I figured I'd always be around to write the characters. And that once I left, it would be re- to retire and I wouldn't know, I wouldn't look anymore. I didn't think I would be coming back again and again and again. Right. Have you done anything with Carol Danvers' character since Binary? You mean since she became Captain Marvel? Well, yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. Like since... Since the since no. the eighties, you haven't you haven't touched her at all. Oh no, that I shouldn't say that. I've she has guest appeared in Dave's Captain Marvel, Ms. Marvel costume. Um, uh, I think when she was back with the Avengers after she stopped being binary uh, in the aughts. Yeah, okay. She's showed up a couple of times, a bunch of times, but all, but at that point she was a you know a significant character in the Avengers, mm-hmm. not not any of my purview at all. Right, right. Wow, wow. So. Pretty quickly into the into your run on Captain Marvel here, or sorry, Miss Marvel, um, you mm-hmm. get rid of the uh, the Spider Man supporting cast. Like you just don't mention them ever again. Was that something that you well, were like, why is why are we having these people in this book? Well, it's just the the thing that Stan taught me from the beginning was that each each character, each book needed to be individual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a we have a general common commonality of characters and that everybody lives in New York, theoretically. Right. So if if you're looking for a paper, you've got the Daily Bugle. That means Jana, Jonah Jameson. But for me, 
The problem with her being the editor of Woman is that it's a day job. It's a full-time job. I mean, the devil wears Prada joke I made earlier wasn't, it was also to illustrate the job takes a lot of time. If you look at any management in an, in an editorial situation, just walk through the Marvel offices and look at the, the offices and look, sorry, look at the editors in their offices. It's not something you can get up, walk out the door and suddenly jump into a phone booth and bingo, you're Superman. Right. It was restricting because if she was responsible to her job, she had no time to go out and save the world. And if she went out and saved the world, she wasn't responsible to her job and what boss would let her get away with that. And how is any of that interesting uh, on more than a superficial level to the readership? Right. And how does it create cool stories? You know, so the that was partly the decision to have her go freelance. You know, like, I'm sorry, Jonah, I can't do this anymore. It was her discovering her own limitations as, as Ms. Marvel, because if she's available to save the world, she can't be doing, she can't do a responsible job as managing editor of a magazine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if she's managing editor of a magazine, she can't go out and save the world. And since the book is Ms. Marvel, not Carol Danvers, top-notch editor. <laughs> right. They, we had to find a way to make that work, which is why, you know, she hit the road, became a freelancer. And again, once she was a freelancer, the, the, the idea was, well, let's, let's build her a supporting cast, which is unique to her and not totally d- derivative from five other books. Because the other problem with that is if the minute you start integrating Series A into Series B into Series C into Series D, um, well, one of the classic hassles I remember from the 70s is when Len Wein and uh, Steve Gerber, Steve was writing the Hulk in Defenders, Len was writing the Hulk. And they had a, they were going around hammer and tongs because each one felt he was the, the primary writer of the character. Right, yeah. You know, and if, if Steve did something that Len didn't like or vice versa, who had primacy? And that's with lead characters. And that, you know, if you start getting into that foolishness with supporting characters, right. except on a specific, you know, Jonah is one thing. Uh, even to an extent, Reed is one thing. But if you're going to have uh, Willie Lumpkin, the, the mailman, yep. that's cool. <laughs> you totally. know, I mean, well, he was around for all these years in the mainstream. And then I think when Salva and I were working on the FF, we brought in his daughter who had picked up the responsibility as a male as a mail person. Right. Yes, I remember that. A deliverer of the mail. I can't, that's Let, letter really carrier. doesn't sound right. A letter carrier. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, because it, it, it was an acknowledgement of the passage of time without being, without saying, hey, it's been 30 years. Right. Because that can't exist in the, in, in the comics universe, that, mm-hmm. that time passage. That you can get away with. You know, when I was uh, writing Doctor Strange, it's like I introduced an indigenous character, or, or as I used to be called, American Indian, mm-hmm. who became his bookkeeper uh, because I wanted someone other than Wong to to hang out and to give him someone to talk to because that seemed the most you know the most normal way of approaching things. You know, every I think every writer tries to put their own stamp on on a series or on a uh, a group of characters, and you hope that they're all interesting and cool and will will emphasize the in the individuality and the reality of the series unto itself right yeah doesn't always work but you have to take at least take the shot and if it doesn't work you, you just forget about it and move on okay so this might seem like a weird question and if it is let me know this miss marvel was created as sort of a response to the feminist movement of at the time do you think it made any sort of impact in that era 
define any sort of impact. Yeah, I know that's that's kind of a hard hard question there. Do you think it uh, it influenced comic book writers or artists in any way, especially female ones? Ah, that's a good one. Um, I honestly have no idea. Hmm. I know I know from my experience in the X Men that when we were moving through the um, the the eighties and towards the nineties, that probably a a thirty percent of our readership were women, which was a number nobody had ever seen in, in yeah. mainstream comics before. Right. Uh, so obviously, we were doing something right, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. I think the problem with with a challenge with Ms. Marvel was that it was just that number of years ahead of its time. And again, the advantage a group book has over a solo is that if you put six or seven characters on the page, it stands to reason that, that the re- that at least one or two will appeal to different readers. You know, if you look at the seven X-Men that, that started with 94, if they didn't like Aurora, they might like Nightcrawler, or if not Nightcrawler, right. then Wolverine, if yeah. not Wolverine, then Colossus. <laughs> and just to make things really complicated, we threw in Kitty. Right. So there's always something, whereas a solo character stands or falls hmm. on who he or she is. Right. Either you like I mean, think it or of, not. Well, there was a whole lot of, a whole number of years where... In the in the beginning, where you had an where you had a book that was split down the middle between Cap and Iron Man, you know, each each one got eight or nine pay, eight pages each. Right. Yeah. Because neither of them were considered strong enough to sustain one full title. But if we put them together, maybe they'll they'll bond. I mean, it was the same rationale behind combining Luke Cage with Danny Rand in Power Fist. Right, right. Power Man Iron Fist. It's like neither one was quite successful as an individual series, but together, who knows? Because certainly they attracted totally different audiences. Yeah. So, we, you know, you go that way. The thing with comics is it's a remarkably fluid publishing regime, and the, the benchmark of it is always keep trying till you, you get it right. And getting it right is hitting the right character, the right place, the right time, appealing to the right audience. And again, when you talk about was it was Ms. Marvel a precursor to capitalizing on the feminist uh, liberation sense of, of the mid-70s, who knows? Perhaps a, a, a different, more attuned writer could have caught that wave more effectively. I don't know. Mm. Um, I was trying my best for whatever reason, whether it was the synergy of art and character and script or not, it didn't work. Or, you know, if, but if we'd stuck around for another year, who knows? Right. You always, yeah. you always start with the highest of hopes and then you come down to reality. The flip side of this is that in 1969, well, you had the X-Men produced by Roy, Roy Thomas and Neil Adams. From my, from my eyes as a reader and a member of the staff back then, I thought this was the best stuff ever. Yeah. I couldn't wait to get the next issue. The problem is, and the irony is readers felt the same way, but we didn't get the sales figures until November hmm. from a book that came out in January. So by the time we got the sale, Marvel got the sales figures and realized, holy cow, we've got a hit on our hands. It was already too late. Neil had already gone back to DC. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, so now with direct with the direct sales, you have instant response. The problem is with instant response is sometimes you need a little time for a book to find its level, to find its sales peak, to 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 strike the so-called motherload of we've got something good. 
Case in point, uh, Cheers. It took a year to kind of catch on. But from NBC's point of view, they got 10 years out of Cheers, and then they got 10 years out of Kelsey Grammer. Right. <laughs> you know, that's not a bad investment. It's, no. It, that's the thing. You have to find a way to balance the panic you will feel if you don't have an instant hit versus the, oh, my goodness, we've canceled this book, but... but. Right, okay. I mean, just trying to remember mainstream series that got canceled by oh duh not ncis but jag okay yeah jag you know jag gets canceled by was it nbc or abc after one season cbs picked it up and whammo they Mm. had nine years (laughs) right and what did what did jag lead into oh i don't know ncis yeah. And they're what, at 16 and counting? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Imagine if they just, if ABC had, if it had just died back in the 90s, what wouldn't be on television now? Right. You know, no NCIS, no NCIS Los Angeles, no NCIS New Orleans. Think of all, you know. Well, and all the derivative so you, shows that followed. Well, you have to, you have to find a way to balance instant gratification with give it a, give it a little time. Mm-hmm. And that give it a little time part of the equation is, is becoming more and more challenging, more difficult in the current uh, broadcast and, by extension, publishing environment. Right. Uh, the problem used to be was you would start a series and you would look at each issue as it came in, and what you would want is a nice, steady increase in the sales. If issue one does 25, issue two might do 30, issue three might do 35. So by the time you get to issue 12, maybe you've you've gone from, you know, you're up to 50. And with issue 24, you might be up to 100. Hmm. And what happens after that? Now it's, you you have the instant gratification of the direct market, but too often the first issue is the peak and it's downhill from there. And by the time you discover from perhaps reader response or Twitter or whatever, that you have a hit, all the creators have moved on to other projects. Right. And then you have to look and see, well, do I have space on in the line now to reboot this series and try and start it up all over again? But you've lost all the original momentum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's a tricky business. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. I yeah. mean, it, it, on one level, it's not rocket science, but on the other level, it's a lot more complicated. Yeah. And the, the thing you always have to watch out for is what happens after the rocket takes off, because not every rocket gets out of the atmosphere. And that's something you have to be careful of. So, you know, it is, as they say, a challenge. Mm -hmm. Well, Chris, I I know that um, I don't want to keep you for too long. I just want to say, though, that Marvel's been reprinting your old Miss Marvel issues in this um, epic collection Mm -hmm. and then Omnibus is coming out. And so I've been discovering these for the first time. And I had a lot Mm. of fun reading these issues. Um, I think they're great. Well, I think it it was a lot of fun to write in its own way. She's a very cool character. I think the the thing, you know, it's nice. I mean, speaking purely from a a writing perspective, the fun thing for me was having the fact that Rogue stole her life, Mm -hmm. created some great, you know, problems for Rogue. Yeah. And, you know, the issue where, where Rogue returns to the mansion and after, sorry, where Carol returns to the mansion after Rogue has appealed to Charlie for help, and everybody's all pissed off. And the fact that Walt Simonson is drawing it gives, gave rise to the, for me, one of the best comic book action moments ever, where Carol walks into the mansion and there's a beat, and then suddenly Rogue explodes out the roof. <laughs> yeah. And then you turn the page, you know, and then you look at the next panel and she's out by the moon. And she's going, wow, 
I don't think I've ever been hit that hard. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you just flew 200,000 miles in about a second. Yeah. And then she dives back down, and there's Carol waiting and said, okay, you want another one? Here it is. Wham! Yeah, so awesome. And she goes flying a whole bunch of miles the other direction, and they confront each other, and Rogue says, why are you hitting me? I don't even know who you are. <laughs> and Carol says, okay, and turns off her power, and it's like, oh, oh yeah. sorry. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so great. But it's like, yeah. well, but the point there is remembering that Rogue's still, in many ways, a kid, and Carol's the grown-up. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle her in the movie because of all the, you know, the reports online about how they've been rebooting and redesigning and recrafting and editing Carol's history in the comics to bring her up to date. Right. You know, the advantage of not reading the comics is not knowing what any of this means. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, um, on one level, it's frustrating having spent a lot of time creating her backstory so that you'd understand who and what and why she is. But that's, you know, that's, that's the adventure of being in a, a work for higher industry. Mm-hmm. But the whole idea from, for me of Carol was that she is a woman who is constantly trying to prove herself as much to, for want of a better word, her father as to herself and to stand up for herself in a world around her that is primarily male-oriented. Right. You know, my son, your brother is the one who's going to the who's going to go and make a career, not you. Well, you know, I have dreams too. Well, you're just a girl. And it's in a frustrating way that's exactly the kind of message that needs to be put out now in the sense that no, she's more than that and we all have to sit back and say this is how we do this. This is who she is. This is where she goes. And the choice is, do we want to give her that chance? Do we want to give her the same chance that we should give her brother or not? And if we do or if we don't, we have to provide a rationale for it, both for the character and for the readers. You know, the the first rule, you know, Stan's fundamental rule of comics is to create a character and and a situation that the readers recognize instantly. I know people like that. I know a life like that. I know choices like that. And then play with the answers so the readers can look at them and say, oh, holy cow, I've walked down that street. Or, geez, I could walk down that street. Mm -hmm. I don't even need superpowers, but I have, I've faced the same questions. I want to come up with the same answers. Yeah. You know, it's not... It shouldn't just be, I have a good guy costume, you have a bad guy costume, (laughs) we're going to punch a lot. Right. You know, because while that's fun, it's not exactly, um, you know, once you come back for the next issue, what's different? Well, the bad guy is slightly different. Okay. And the next issue? You know, if you're going to do this for 100 issues. Yeah, it's not sustainable. We need need to have a reason to, to bond with the character, to care about what happens, and to come back and see what happens next. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the fundamental difference is you're going to get inundated with, with Captain Marvel because she's coming out in March and then Avengers Infinity Wars is coming out in, what, April or May. Mm-hmm. But then it's going to be three years, if we're lucky, till the next one. And goodness knows what's going to happen in the world or in the, in the movies or in anywhere else between now and then. 
but the next issue is coming out now. Right. How do you make now relevant? How do you make the character relevant? How do you identify what is on the pages with the lives and dreams and aspirations of the people who are reading them, boys and girls, men and women? Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 like you, you know it, you you've got to figure out what's what, and I guess. And you have to. I think you have to do it on a level of of humanity. I mean, the thing the, the the thing that made Iron Man so powerful is that the conflicts were built around Tony living his life, some of the people and situations he encountered in his life, and ultimately with with Captain America three Civil War. Yep. The fact that you know, if you look, the thing that made that brilliant as a film story is you had Cap trying to save the life of his best friend who helped him when he was a punk, I mean, a young a young lad in the, in Depression-era New York, and he wasn't Captain America. He was just a, this little wimp. But from Tony's perspective is, that bastard killed my parents. Mm-hmm. There is no middle ground here. I'm going to kill him. And the irony was that the hero, the actual hero of of Civil War, turns out to be T'Challa, who has every excuse to hate Bucky because Bucky killed his dad. Right. Except it wasn't really Bucky. It was the, the what you call it, who had him under mind control. So you had, for the first time in modern comic book film history, there was no villain. Mm-hmm. Right. No real villain. Yeah. Each character had a had a rational, heroic reason for doing what he was doing. And one of them had to, to be the referee. And it turned out to be T'Challa. That's cool. Yeah. It was, it was you know, and I think the thing with... Captain Marvel, the challenge with Captain Marvel is, okay, she gets kidnapped from Earth, obviously, back in the 80s, you know, where Samuel Jackson's young, Nick Mm -hmm. Fury. Um, And, you know, then she comes back. So... On one level, it's it's like with Wonder Woman. What the hell you been doing the last thirty years? Yeah, right. I guess we'll find out. I guess we'll find out. But yeah. then what? Well, no, and then what? But part of it is if you don't care for them as people, if you don't fall in love with them as people. I mean, the the, the one brilliant trailer moment for Avenger Infinity Wars two is that it opens with Tony and the, the silly rocket ship saying goodbye to uh, Pepper. And he doesn't even know if Pepper is one of the 50% that didn't die. Right. Uh, or at least from the, tri- the clip, he doesn't. I mean, we know that Spider-Man died. Mm-hmm. You know, we know mm-hmm. that all the Guardians died except for, uh, for what's-his-face? Rocket. Um, Rocket. Yep. You know, that's, that's about as horrible as it gets. We know T'Challa died, so where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. So it, from a teaser point of view, that's effing brilliant. Yep. We, we know from the end of Infinity Wars that, that, that Nick send out the SOS to Carol with no way of knowing that she isn't one of the 50% either. Right. It's a gamble. So where, what comes out of that? What should come out of it? What needs to come out of it in the film and in every flippant issue of the comic is who is this person, not this super being, but this person? Why should we care? Because if we don't care about them as a person, then our affection for the stories is, ah, if you've got a brilliant artist, it's a great mystery, uh, but you're just another skin-tight suit. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the ultimate challenge for any creative team in comics, is how do you transcend the the basics and, and get the reader in for the long haul? And that means you've got to find a way to have the reader fall in love with the, the main character. And the, reason, and the way you do that is by making them a human being that the reader can recognize, identify with, and care about. If you can do that, you're off to the races. Yeah. If you can't, well, you pick up the pen and try something else. 
Chris, are there any new projects or uh, convention appearances or anything that you would like to um, promote or tell our listeners about? Well, I've got a whole bunch of stuff coming out from Marvel, um, you know, but that it's all in process at the moment, I'm afraid. Oh, okay, so it's all secrets. Um, you know, short story. No, it's not secret. It's just short. I mean, we've got an Excalibur short story that's um, set between one panel and the next of uh, the uh, Cross Time Caper. Where really nice. Just it's it's sort of a prelude to the Barsoom quote unquote two parter. Okay. And a um a Wolverine ten pager with Kitty that's uh set between it, two panels on the f- next to last page of the Kitty Pride Wolverine miniseries that Al Milgram and I did way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, an untold tale of Wolverine in Japan. Oh. Like nothing you've ever seen before. More importantly, drawn by Salvador Lavoca. Nice. So it's the first time we've teamed up in, in about 10 years. So yeah. that'll be a lot of fun. And Bill Sinkevich and I will be working, uh, God willing, on a quick don't rise on an interesting 30-page special involving a group of young heroes. Oh, we'll go to a private school in upstate New York. I wonder who that could be. Well, Westchester County. <laughs> wow. You might call them New Mutants. Mm, that's so fantastic. Wow, sounds like some great well, things to I look think forward the to. Own, the, the, the one cheap joke I, I threw in, and Bill better put it on, in, on the page if, I, if he knows what's good to it for him, is that uh, Rain runs around. She, she wears a, she's got a new T-shirt she wears over everything because it's her favorite T-shirt and her favorite character. And on the front of it is I and the heart, you know, the heart icon. Yep. And on the back, it should have NY, but it's been crossed out. And the name, uh, the name Aria has been penciled in instead. I, I heart Aria. Stark. Stark? Aria Stark? Really? You don't watch Game of Thrones? No, Ooh. no, I don't. So, I mean, and now that you say it, I, I know, but that's, uh, the, the Game of Thrones fans will be pleased. Well, I figured since, you know, since Daisy is playing both characters, what the hell? Right. Oh, okay, of course. Now yeah, I get, oh, now I I get it. Really, yeah, see? <laughs> okay. If you're doing it's an obvious in-joke, but that's the whole point of an in-joke, to yes. be obvious. And I'm not in because I don't watch Game of Thrones. No, I, I get it now. <laughs> that's tisk, awesome. Tisk, tisk. <laughs> well, there we go. Well, on that, on that note, yeah. um, quit while we're ahead. <laughs> right. But anyway, yeah, so I've got a bunch of stuff coming out uh, through the, throughout this year, so um, it's fun. Awesome. That's great. And I appreciate the time that you uh, took to talk with us today. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy the movie when it comes out, Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll definitely keep I'm looking our forward to it. Yeah, you know. I think so. But we will uh, we'll have to get you back on the show to talk about something else at some point. So we'll have to uh, okay. see you again some other time. Okie dokie.